Welcome to The Long Box of Darkness, a podcast looking at horror in comic book form. I'm your host, Herman Lowe. Join me as we take a peek inside The Long Box of Darkness. Well, listeners, I've got a special treat for you tonight. Uh, We are joined by a guest, someone who I've been dying to have on the show for a while now. She's a writer, a blogger, a connoisseur of horror, and someone known for her scathing and insightful film reviews. She is the mastermind behind the blog TheBackseatDriverReviews.com, and she's a regular contributor to Diabolique magazine, That's Not Current, a frequent podcaster on the Decades of Horror podcast, and overall swell gal. So with that, it's my pleasure to welcome Erin Miskell to the show. Hi, Erin. How are you? Hi, how are you? I'm great, thanks. What have you been up to? Watching a lot of good stuff, reading a lot of interesting things? Yes, I have. Um, have you seen um, Tale of Tales? No, I haven't. Oh, my Ooh, God. You need to. You need to. It's It's really good. It's really, really good. Okay, I'm gonna it, get on that. Yes, it it does a deep dive into um, into some of the um, older um, Italian uh, fairy tales. Oh, seriously. And well, mm. yep, it's not a hundred percent, but um, but it goes for the Basile um, retellings, which are older than the Grimm brothers. Oh, great! So okay, I've got to yes, get on that. I'm such a good. fan of, and, yeah, of, of, let's say, Angela Carter, you know, the bloody chamber, that kind of thing. And, um, yes. you know, any of the old, um, you know, original tales, the, you know, the way they were originally presented. I mean, there's a lot of horror in there, Erin. <laughs> Am I wrong in saying that? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Fairy tales are, oh, they're, they're so delicious. Yeah, I like them. In their, you know, um, unedited form, I should say. <laughs> yes, uh, Kind of, kind of a funny story. Um, one of the things that I saw when I was a child was um, uh, my school's library had some older versions of fairy tales that were not the Disney version. So I read the original version of The Little Mermaid and then went to go see the Disney version of The Little Mermaid. And there's little seven-year-old me going, that's not how the story ends. Erin, <laughs> <laughs> I remember this from one of your articles. Was it, I don't know if it was for Diabolique magazine, but you wrote this whole piece on dark Disney and and I think you referenced the Little Mermaid am I am I am I wrong here am I misremembering it um there there are a couple of times where I've gone after the Little Mermaid <laughs> okay. uh, there was um there was one for there were actually two for my site um there um one was um talking about um a comparison between um uh, the Lover's Vow um, oh, segment yeah. of Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, yeah, and the original Little Mermaid. And then the other one, I just kind of um, went to town on um, on 
the fact that um, if you really stop and think about it, the Disney version of The Little Mermaid is really about the fact that um, this bratty teenager didn't read the fine print of <laughs> exactly yeah. contract that she signed. <laughs> yeah, she I makes remember horrible choices. When you watch something as an adult now and um, you sort of start siding with the villains, you say, well, well, wait a sec. No, she she signed that contract and. Now she's trying to weasel out of it, and you're just sort of going, and I've been on the, the cell phone company too much. <laughs> oh, man, I get it. No, I, I, had, I have a whole new appreciation, uh, appreciation for lots of material um, because of you, I, I have to admit. <laughs> oh, or you. in some cases, a depreciation. <laughs> but um, no, it's great, Aaron. I'm, I'm so happy you're on the show. Just to give our listeners a bit more info, um, I want to kick things off with asking you, could you give us a bit of insight into your, what I like to call horror origins? Um, you sure. could just let us know about how you got into the genre in general and then into horror comics in particular. The the biggest piece that, that really fell into, um, into place, um, I read uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula when I was about seven which um, back in the 80s when w back in the 80s when you weren't really that supervised it was very easy to pull off um, there were a lot of nightmares and some skittishness <laughs> afterwards but um, but I got over that and from there I I went from um, from Stoker to Poe um, I didn't get to Frankenstein until a little bit later but I I had an avid reader for a grandfather who would um, point me in the direction of things. So, I mean, I have, to this day, um, his copy of The Divine Comedy, and it's all three books in this um, beautiful lithographed um, wow. volume that, that he has. That, that's one of my prized possessions. But, yeah, I read I read The Divine Comedy, oh, God. I, I read Purgatory when I was 10. What? I, I mean, I that's incredible. I, I didn't know a lot of it went over my head, but a lot of the a lot of the symbols were not lost on me <laughs> where um, I just sort of read it and went, oh, I don't want to wind up there. Coincidentally, that was so um, that was also the same year that I that I read the, the Bible, which um, read that one cover to cover and um, the experienced original, a, uh, yeah, the original horror horror novel. <laughs> <laughs> it, it really is. I mean, for for a year, I, you've got to picture this um, skittish ten-year-old, kind of um, completely terrified of the world around her, thinking God's a monster. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, was, I get what you mean. <laughs> it, it was pretty intriguing, and then um, from there, I started getting into scary movies. So back in the late '80s, early '90s, it was very easy to. Um, sneak watch some stuff that you shouldn't so um something was playing on hbo like um the stephen king adaptations of cat's eye or you know child play or on elm street it was really easy to sneak watch those so um one of the funnier stories would have to be um at my 10th birthday party we all thought that we were the coolest things in the world we had um we had watched um, we'd all watched Child's Play and we've watched um, Nightmare on Elm Street. So we thought that we were pretty hot stuff. And um, my dad decided to break out um, House, um, House on Haunted Hill. And that one freaked a group of four little 10-year-olds out. And we slept <laughs> with the lights on. And we slept in shifts. 
<laughs> oh my goodness oh well we're, we're very practical of you guys <laughs> it's sort of like a, the, the female sorry the female equivalent of stranger things i was gonna say <laughs> <laughs> well it was it was funny because out of out of the core group of the four of us um two of us have remained very close and we're both horror hounds now so nice. um so it's very funny that actually our nickname in um, middle school was the gruesome twosome because we were <laughs> inseparable and we had this, this knack for horror movies, but um, we were, um, it, it really kind of, um, there, there are two kinds of people in the world. You'll either get ultra scared and swear off of horror movies, or you're just going to dive in with both feet and you're not going to care how shallow that pool is. Yeah, and so, you're the latter. <laughs> Definitely the latter. <laughs> yes. yes, I can evolve right into that shallow pond. So, um, wow. but but yeah, that's that's kind of where where I come from. So um, it it progressed very, um, very quickly um, from kind of the classical stuff to it really started to fold in some of the uh, some of the gorier stuff now yeah. where. Um, it's really funny to um, to watch certain horror movies, and um, I used to work in uh, the medical um, field, right. and part of my job involved going into um, operating rooms. And Jeez. it was really funny because everyone would say um, I worked in the information technology department. Yeah. Um, you know, oh, you're IT, you're not medical, and they're like, you're doing really well during the surgery. I'm like. Yeah, it's fine. I grew up with Simpsons <laughs> and I watched horror movies. And one of the guys um, that I worked with um, knew what kind of movies I watched. And he just sort of looked over the one day and said, I know what kind of movies Erin watches. Trust me, she's she's going to do <laughs> She's me. fine. She's fine. It, it's kind of like I call this the, the John Carpenter, the thing syndrome. You know, once you've seen, um, you know, uh, the thing. I can't believe that that the operating room would hold any horrors for for anyone. It does still, but you know, I would advise any you know young pre med student to to watch John Carpenter's yep. The Thing, and then that'll desensitize you. <laughs> so there's there's a story I have about The Thing. One of the um, one of the local theaters. I'm in um, Rochester, New York. Um, if yeah. anyone's ever in Rochester, hit up the Little Theater because they make their own popcorn and they do a ton of independent uh, cinema, but the big draw is the popcorn. So um, one of the things that they will run every so often is um, the uh, company Fright Rags um, will help put on a uh, program called um, Saturday Night Rewind. And they had a restored 35 millimeter print of the thing that they showed the one day. And it was so exciting to go and see it. And naturally, I sat around like all of the drunk people that got hammered and decided to come to this movie. So the scene with the dog, which is arguably one of the most traumatic things that you will watch, especially if you love animals, even if you're mad on animals, um, that scene just keeps going and going and it's so, it's so gory. And, um, I remember watching for the first time and, and just being beside myself going, what are they doing to the puppy? And, and this woman about a row or two away from me, she's laughing hysterically. She's laughing her head off. And I'm I just sort of looked over and thought, what is wrong with you? And I remember sharing um, sharing the experience with a friend of mine who um, lived in Scotland, and he was equally horrified as well. He said, 
what kind of monsters did you sit through this movie with? And I went, I was yeah. so angry yeah, at I mean, this woman. Come on. She's not a human being, Erin. She was probably some some alien uh, visiting, to, you know, some alien anthropologist checking out human behavior and getting it completely wrong, <laughs> laughing inappropriately. She was Wilford Brimley in disguise. <laughs> she was Wilford. That is a very disturbing story. No, I, I agree with you completely. I think if you didn't have that reaction to the thing, you know, where you, especially the the dog scene where they're all whining and in the kennel oh. and, and the horror commences, then you're not, you know, uh, you're, you're not right for this this planet. You should you should leave. <laughs> my my oldest had expressed interest. She found the, the film in my collection and she went, mm. can, can I watch this? And her dad and I just sort of looked at each other and said, no way. Oh, my God. You, enough for this movie and she um her recent argument has been well i've seen deadpool and i went you don't understand no. there's something that you can't <laughs> see right now no and, i um, no, i think deadpool would slice that woman in the theater that laughed at the dog part slice her into bits because <laughs> you know i mean he i don't even think he would be able to handle you know whatever happens uh, in you know to the animals and the thing but, um, you know, uh, there's something a healing factor just can't, can't heal, if you know what I mean. Psychological scars. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, um, oh, absolutely. That's awesome, Erin. We've got some great, great uh, horror origins for you. I don't think I've ever heard better ones, you know, but, you know, <laughs> I don't want to slide previous guests, but that, that takes the cake. And then... Um, Thank you. Well, I will say... Yeah? I'm sorry. I will say that I did get into um, the comic aspect of, of horror um, through Dracula actually um there were a couple of um adaptations that were going around and some have stood the test of time and some haven't um and i've i've read quite a few of them and that was really um i think that the story translated so well from novel to um to um comic and then into uh film that yeah. i agree with that you there it was, yeah. yeah it it's kind of like the the you know uh, comics being you know um, a visual medium it operates on the show don't tell mm -hmm. principle and if you think about stoker's original book it's kind of like all tell no show you know so um uh, that's what uh, you know gives it the strength of in the fiction the original fiction but when it comes to comic books and they eventually showed that to a generation of kids i'm thinking here now marvel's tomb of dracula and things like that and you know the hammer comics that they did in in you know, based on the Hammer films, that really worked well because people have been dying to see what, you know, other than film, what the Count would look like, uh, an alternative version. And um, comics have never disappointed when it came, you know, to portraying Dracula. At least, not never. You know, there have been versions. I, yeah. I wasn't a big fan of of Dracula in the Buffyverse, even though he's a great character. He's not Dracula, per se, for me, if you know what I mean. Yes. They could have given him another name. They could have given him a name Alucard or, you know, um, Vlad uh, being, you know, an ancestor of, of Dracula or, or whatever. But for me, that's not my Dracula. My Dracula is the monstrous, you know, the the sort of um, the evil, you know, uh, version, not the likable version, <laughs> if you know what I mean, as, as a person. <laughs> but um, I agree with you about there's been so many versions of Dracula. And I can see where, since that was the novel you read from, you know... Um, at the start when you were seven, you said, right? Um, yes, it's my safety blanket of sorts, which is kind of cold comfort, but it is indeed my it is indeed my safety blanket, so I'm just going to embrace it. Well, that's awesome, Erin. No, no, I'm glad that you are interested in comics because otherwise you wouldn't be here. And, um, you know, I, I'm really, 
you know, um, happy that I could confab with you about this particular comic that we're going to be discussing today because it's quite disturbing. I'm sure you'll agree. And we'll let the listeners in on what we're going to be talking about. Um, so, Aaron, you and I have decided to pick a very controversial work um, for our discussion today. It is, in fact, Alan Moore's Neonomicon. Uh, published by Avatar Press, written by Alan Moore, art by Jason Burroughs, colors by Juan Mar. And it first saw the light of day in 2010, July of 2010. Uh, turned out to be just a four-issue miniseries uh, uh, by Avatar. And um, it is kind of like a sequel to Alan Moore's previous work, The Courtyard. Now, Aaron, have you have you read The Courtyard, um, the, the one that preceded this? I have not. That is one that I always managed to narrowly escape. Mm. which makes it sound like I'm engaged in a game of cat and mouse with Alan Moore. <laughs> I promise I'm not. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I want that leads into my next question. Like, um, what do you generally think about Alan Moore and his work? Um, you know, oh. in, <laughs> are you a fan or? Um... Um, I think, I think where we get into an issue with, with Moore, at least for me, and I will uh, preface this by stating all views are mine and not and not anybody else's um, so that no one comes after you and starts screaming, well, this is what you think. No, no, this is this is all Aaron. Um, I think that Moore has the potential with some of the dark musings of mythology. I, I really think that he wants to go and explore some places that... Um, that are not necessarily um, very palatable um, to the psyche. I think that he goes to some spots that are nihilistic and really a downer and, uh, and edgy. At the same time, this is there's no nice way for me to say this, so I'm just going to rip off the Band-Aid and say it. I think Moore writes comics for the boys, and... I think he tries with some of the p female perspective, but I think he he doesn't necessarily put himself in the position and perspective of some of the women upon which he writes. I think that he still um, he still is very much an outsider from that. So when I read things like The Watchmen. Um, it's very, very tough for me um, where I have to very actively take the perspective of somebody else because there's um, typically as a reader um, and very much um, in terms of being a female reader, you will sort of look around and think of, um, of what can I latch onto. So um, especially when you're little, um, female readers of comics will, will sort of like um, everyone jokes, you know, Oh, you want to be the girl character? Well, it's it's more so we're we're looking for something like us to to help us immerse ourselves in the story, and that's kind of a reflection of how the world is, where we we look around and say, well, well, what is there for me? You know, what what is there for me to relate to? Because um, the perspective of various men are going to differ very greatly from my own perspective. So there was. Um, one guy, for example, that um, that I knew in college that was talking about how rough he had it. And um, 
I mean, it was, he, he came from a very comfortable middle class um, background. He was talking about how much he struggled, and I had to look at him the one day and say, well, wait a minute, is anybody accusing you of sleeping with the professor for your grades? And he looked horrified, and he said, absolutely not. And I told him, then you really don't get what some of us go through. And um, I think, to, I think to, to a certain extent, more suffers from that he he creates these really um these really potentially um very very rich um stories and he goes back and he does the homework um especially with lovecraft he really goes back and does his homework and and dives on that so i've got to credit him there but in terms of um in terms of his women um were really just kind of plot devices to alan and um, it, it feels like, you know, we're, we either get to be the shiny car or the, the horse that's gasping for breath. <laughs> and that's how we get point B. I know, and, um, I, I know there's, there's sorry, Aaron, continue. So. Yeah. No, I know exactly what you mean. I just wanted to, to, to mention that because, um, you know, one thing I've noticed about Moore during the, I mean, not that I could, um, you know, speak about it on, on your level, but, um, I've noticed it, uh, you know, through reading him for for uh, three decades now, he treats his female characters at times um, horribly. Uh, starting way back when with um, you know uh, Abby Cable in Swamp Thing, and even you know during the same time um, with uh, you know uh, the book called Miracle Man, which he wrote, yep. and um, Miracle Woman, in that um, also a victim of of horrible acts. And, um, you know, uh, he portrays it as if they come out stronger at the end, yes. but they wouldn't, I mean, it wouldn't have to make them stronger because it doesn't have to happen to them um, uh, from the get-go, if you know what I mean. But if it does happen, yes. of course, it, it is the ideal situation that you do come out stronger at the end, but that's not always the reality. In fact, it almost never happens. I mean, they, you, you're broken psychologically. Um, so, you know, the fact that Moore sort of puts a spin on it, like, oh, you know, this is what happens at the end. She's almost, um, uh, you know, uh, gone through a, a revelatory experience that kind of bugs me. And it happens to every one of his characters, whether it's, um, uh, the daughter of Captain Nemo in uh, league of extraordinary gentlemen, you know, the rape sort of galvanized mm -hmm. her, her experience with, 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 um, the harshness of, of the attentions of men, uh, galvanized her to become, um, uh, and realize her full potential to become what she was always meant to be, which was just a cipher of Captain Nemo himself. And, um, you know, I, I find that wrong. You know, you, do, you wouldn't have to go through this experience to reach your ultimate, you know, level of, of being. And Moore sort of does portray that way too often. And um, but but I would just just to give give the more, more apologists a bit of uh, leeway to Erin, uh, the Ballad of Halo Jones and um, Promethea, which he has done, I think were admirable attempts at trying to write stronger female characters who, who didn't always go through these horrible experiences. Although Promethea does, in fact, go through a questionable experience, but uh, it's portrayed as consensual. But, you know, uh, I don't know. Have you read those? Um, um, more female Promethea kind of struck me as more coercion than anything else, which, um, speaking from experience, coercion can be even more damaging 
um, because that that tends to be even more insidious, and the victimhood um, gets questioned even worse. Right. Um, because it tends to be someone who, someone who you know that you that you sort of go along with, um, so that you're not rocking the boat. Yeah. Um, so I, I found it to be a bit more coercive than than anything, and it that also sends a not so great message in terms of, you know, you can you can keep saying no and keep saying no, but we all know deep down you're saying yes. I mean, and mm, yeah. and that winds up being a really really uh, sticky uh, point with um, with the idea of consent. I understand. I just for the listeners, Aaron, I do have to mention that both of you, uh, both both you and I, sorry. Um, we are not big fans of Neonomicon per se. I mean, I'm a fan of Lovecraft and I, I, I'm a fan of Moore, you know, reinterpreting Lovecraft like he did with the superior genre when he reinterpreted it with Watchmen. I'm a fan of that, but I'm not mm-hmm. a fan of, uh, you know, because the entire comic book of Neonomicon, the entire story is sort of dominated by this one event. W- would you agree? Yes. And and that's what I think needs to be discussed. So you know, just to let the listeners know, you and I, I, I especially wanted you to be on the show because I've I've noticed you are very good at getting to the heart of of these um, you know uh, often disturbing things or things that that other people tend to to gloss over a little bit. And um, especially you know from from my side, I'm not very deep when it comes to looking at all the you know this uh, the the levels. Uh, um, when it comes to the interpretation of of, of this kind of horror, and um, you know, uh, I think that is going to dominate our discussion today. This central act of horror, which happens in Neonomicon. Um, but um, just to give the listeners a bit of a feel for the format that we're going to use, I'm going to give a quick synopsis of each issue, since there were four issues, and then Aaron, after the synopsis, we'll get into the events and the characters. And then at the very end of the, the, the four-issue discussion, we'll get into our overall impressions. Um, but when we get to the, the events that we've, we've hinted at, um, feel free to just, just give it your all and, and let Moore know. <laughs> <laughs> you can't get away with this, the bastard. <laughs> but, well, thank you. And, and at the same time, you're doing just fine with, um, with your articulation and, um, and backing up your points. So don't discredit yourself. Okay. Thanks, Erin. No, it's just, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be careful here, you know, but, um, I am going to enjoy this discussion because it's horror in it's more and it's Lovecraft. You know, I've, I've always been a big Lovecraft fan. Um, how about you? I know you're big into Edgar Allan Poe, but, but how's your Lovecraft, Erin? I, I really got into Lovecraft as a teenager. And as I've gotten older, he's become so multi-layered, um, I, I really find Lovecraft was, um, he was a very, very messed up individual. I mean, you, you read about his childhood and you read, I mean, his marriage sounded like a horror movie in and of itself. I mean, they, they make lifetime movies about marriages like that. And, uh, which, um, yeah, it's, it, it was really scary to hear about some of it. And his life was just so terribly unhappy and, I I find that um, especially in um, with with Lovecraft, he seemed to have a really strange um, view of sex. That um, that it was something that um, was unnatural, and that um, it it really seemed like if a woman willingly went along with um, 
with um, sex with a with a uh, supernatural creature, um, it would it would produce monstrous um, offspring. But it it almost it struck me as um, the, the insinuation, and the worst part is that it was a feeling that I got, especially as I got older. It almost felt like the more it was implied that um, that it wasn't consensual, the more powerful the entity would be born, and um, it was almost like, you know, hey, create a, create a leader, you know, fish man, go out and rape a woman. And, you know, next thing you know, you've got your general for your army. So he seemed under really odd terms that the higher up the food chain it was, the more traumatic the conception was. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, um, Lovecraft himself, you know, being very asexual, uh, like you said, men- yeah. mentioning or, or, or viewing sex as, as abhorrent or, or hor- horrific. He, in fact, you know, never describes what happens, but there are many instances. I'm thinking about the shadow over Innsmouth, where the fish people of Innsmouth, yep. you know, were obviously the product of this um, abysmal coupling, this unnatural, you know, um, uh, coupling between uh, deep ones and humans, and also um, the Dunwich Horror, you know, where, where this uh, father himself had um, impregnated his daughter after he was possessed by some kind of an avatar of, of one of the great old ones. Um, and then producing these unnatural children. Lovecraft was horrified at, at the thought of that. And that comes from his miscegenation, right, Aaron? Um, mm-hmm. From his in, uh, inherent feeling that, uh, okay, he was a racist. That's a fact. And uh, we know that from his letters to to contemporary writers and friends of the time. But he he found the, the mix of races, in particularly in Red Hook in New York, at the time when he lived there with mm-hmm. his wife, Sonia Green, he found that particularly disturbing you know the the fact that these races would all come together in this hodgepodge uh, culture and then uh, produce these uh, mixed biracial babies he, he found that to be very upsetting so it, that's his psyche and his sensibilities um, you know fueling the horror but um, you know I don't blame Lovecraft for then because he was a product of his time I mean my grandfather you know was the same you know he he had a racist streak and and um, but that I was think everybody's grandfather did. Yeah, probably. But you know, my grandfather's from South Africa, Aaron. <laughs> we're so oh, we're talking oh, the the founders of apartheid here. But no, no, no. I'm I'm not saying that it's any worse you than went... it was in the south and you know in the states. But sorry, sorry. Uh, go ahead. Oh no, I was just saying you you went there. I mean, my my grandfather he he was he was very tolerant of some but not others, and it was sort of that moment of. Really, you're 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 doing great with with so many people, and why why are we why are we using those terms, Grandpa? <laughs> yeah, I know exactly. So, what you mean. Um, and and we'll in fact find this in in Neonomicon as well. It's sort of mm-hmm. um, you know uh, Moore does uh, make mention of the fact that there was um, you know a lot of racism in Lovecraft's work, and if he reinterprets it, he reinterprets it for a modern context, which which we'll see later when we talk about it. But um, you know, Aaron, so I. Th- I find that you know you you can sometimes um, disassociate the writer from the work, in terms of mm-hmm. Lovecraft at least you can. Um, I I think that's fine, but when it comes to more let's say um, uh, sexual predilections and and when you're getting an enjoyment out of portraying uh, sexual deviancy as horror, 
then I find it a little bit questionable, which is what we're what we're going to be getting into. I mean, Lovecraft sort of left that up to our imaginations. You know, I'm saying that this is what I find horrific. This is what probably happened. Let your imagination run with it. But Alan Moore is obsessed, and Jason Burroughs. I mean, he's complicit in this whole whole um, work. Uh, he's obsessed with portraying every single detail of his vivid imagination regarding the events of these um, abysmal, yes. abysmal couplings. And that's where, where it becomes a little bit, uh, not problematic, but questionable uh, at the very least. So um, let's get into the first uh, issue, Aaron. I should mention there, would be, there will be spoilers for any listeners who haven't uh, read the comic. So, you know, come back, you know, after about uh, 30 minutes or so after you've read it and then you'll, you'll get more out of this discussion. So the first issue um, is entitled At the Mansions of Madness. And this is obviously a, a riff off of Lovecraft's story At the Mountains of Madness. It um, uh, basically involves two FBI agents, Merrill Breers and Gordon Lamper, as they visit the Haven Psychiatric Institute to interview former agent Aldo Sachs, who we last saw in the courtyard. Um, and he has recently committed two serial murders before attacking uh, his superior at the FBI. And this homicidal breakdown could possibly be linked to a case he had been working on involving a club um, named Zothique, which um, the name itself is from a Clark Ashton Smith um, uh, story, um, one of Lovecraft's contemporaries and, um, in fact, one of his friends. And um, this club, Zothique, could have been a front for some kind of cult. Now, Breers and Gordon, the two FBI agents, they go undercover, enter the club to find a man named Johnny Carcosa, who was Aldo Sachs's contact and the club from, from before. And Johnny was also probably the catalyst for whatever happened to Sachs. Uh, eventually, it turns into a full-blown FBI raid in this first issue. Uh, but the agents are left with more questions than answers. So, Aaron, I want to I want to start off with we're introduced to the characters of uh, Meryl Breers, the female FBI agent, and Gordon Lamper, her partner. Um, what do you think of how Moore portrays the characters, or or how he introduces them to us from the beginning? The um, the thing that struck me, and <laughs> this is probably going to put somebody off. Um, <laughs> Lamper was so dismissive of every tiny little thing that Breers did. I mean, she she could have offered him a stick of gum and he would have told her, you're holding the package the wrong way. I mean, just every tiny little thing, he had to just jump on her. At one point, she was talking about um, her recovery from sex addiction. And um, I've heard um, from from friends who, who work in psychology that the, the whole notion of sex addiction is really about, it's not even about the sex itself, it's about, um, it's about loss of control. And it's, it's really spiraling out and, and um, having, a, having a, a physical and psychological craving um, for something that can put you in some pretty bad um, positions. And Lamper is just, he's so dismissive of her, kind of like, yeah, yeah, whatever, you know, just, you know, go hop on somebody new and, you know, oh, it's not really a problem that you have, you know, you just, you just like to go out and, and, you know, be a giant hoe. And there's, there's poor Breers going, but, 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 and, 
And Lambert just dismisses her. Now, for for Breer's behalf, the problem that I have with <laughs> with with our creative staff is that um, her, between her dialogue and her drawing, it reminded me of um, that Twitter hashtag of um, describe yourself the way a male author would. Oh. So it was very oh, much... Yeah. It's, it's like that, isn't it? She had luscious, flowing hair and thick, pouty lips, and her her mouth may have said no, but her hips said yes. I mean, just it was that very hypersexual. You know, you knew that she was going to be. The first time that I that I read this comic, I remember looking at it, going, "Well, I'm going to see her naked in ten minutes," and sure, <laughs> she was, uh, yeah. At, at various very points. Much, I, mean, yeah. I felt like I should have bought Breers a drink after yeah. reading this as I saw way more of her than some dates. So, <laughs> Oh, good one, Aaron. No, no, I, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, there's even a point later on in the story where Breers references the fact that because she she's such a looker, it was such so easy for her to, to be an ex, a sex addict because she could find so many men whenever she needed them you know and that that also kind of disturbed me because um you know that's no excuse sex sex addiction is not always about the way you look you know um but obviously yeah. more you know uh, wanted i don't know if this 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 dealt with avatar press um you know their stipulations when it comes to creative content i mean it's 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 true that a certain amount of nudity in a comic book for for adults sells copies so avatar mm -hmm. probably since you know you you know what what kind of stuff avatar publishes crossed and all of okay. those horror titles they probably had some say in some of the content but they they definitely didn't dictate to alan moore because he doesn't like to be dictated to but i'm saying that yep. they were more than happy for moore to portray a sexy girl you know um as as the main victim here because you know unfortunately a lot of reprehensible individuals are into that kind of um you know thing when it happens uh you know the horror of of, of what Breers goes through later on so having more portray her as this attractive female with a sex problem you know sort of probably turned a lot of people on who read this comic and and that is you know disturbing in itself if you know what i mean Aaron. but oh absolutely <laughs> but to more's credit later on and this adds to the horror um, there are other, you know, people engaged in sex and, and they're definitely not, you know, the ideal human form that, you know, artists, uh, you know, lust after. Um, they're, you know, more everyday people engaged in these uh, horrific sex, you know, uh, rituals. But like you say, Breers is quite, you know, she's a looker. And, um, you know, um, I always uh, looked at sex addiction as, you know, it's sort of like, uh, uh, Breers also mentions this later on, it was about her hating herself. You know, so the, yeah. the sex addiction is her um, need for dissolution, for for uh, utter destruction. You know, she wants herself to just uh, fade away through this loss of control and this dissolution of self uh, by, you know, engaging in these sexual acts with, with anyone, really. We even find out later she had a, a relationship, well, not a relationship, just a, a, a sexual uh, tryst with her uh, superior her fbi superior and the guy wants to you know that's that's another male character that's totally um dismissive of her when he says oh i'm glad you recovered from your sex addiction if you want to pick up our relationship where we left it off 
uh, just let me know. <laughs> so he's completely yeah. discounting what this woman went through. Um, and she, she in fact did check her in, herself in at a, you know, at an institute and recovered from, you know, this problem with herself. And then, you know, you've got these male characters just completely, you know, uh, you know, discounting what she says. So, I mean, that's, that's basically the main two characters, right, Erin? Uh, Breers being, but, but I found though that Breers is portrayed as very competent and innovative, at least compared to her partner. She's more imaginative. She's willing to chase down leads. She's uh, willing to even suspend disbelief at times. Whereas Gordon, uh, her partner, is sort of an insensi insensitive, uh, typical kind of yeah. jock. Uh, he's not necessarily well-read, you know, when she tries to turn him on to Lovecraft's books to, to sort of, um, you know, find out more about the case. He he says it's boring, it's it's dismissive, he doesn't get it. So he's not overly, overtly intellectual. Um, but he's very, and he takes on the, the typical male role of being protective, you know, um, the typical male response. Of, of trying to curb whatever uh, Breers has got in her mind and, you know, uh, saying things are dangerous. I'm uncommon. They're FBI agents, for God's sake. There's no reason. Clarice Starling wouldn't have put up with this, you know, this BS. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Well, and, yeah. and I think to I think to a certain extent, you really hit the nail on the head when you said that Lambert is more so the... Um, He's he's the jock of the yeah. two. She's very much the brains, and she is not afraid to get her her hands dirty. So when they go undercover at the club, you know they they both go in there, but she's really the one giving active chase yeah. to the suspect, and um, that struck me as interesting. It it was almost like she has this need to to prove herself mm. which especially being being a woman in working world um you do have to prove yourself when when you're working in a fairly male-dominated field you you have to prove that you want it more than anybody else that's right yeah especially the fbi and any any law enforcement really uh mm -hmm. even even military right erin if i'm if I'm thinking G.I. Jane yes. here, but, um, <laughs> but um, no, um, you, you know now, this can be interpreted in two ways. At first, uh, kudos to Alan Moore for portraying such a strong female character, but then he sort of says, look at what happens when you take the lead. Look at what happens when you follow your imagination as, a, as a, uh, an intuitive female. Horrible things ensue. And um, I also found that a bit, you know, like uh, Moore portrayed her as, as the cause of an eventual tragedy, tr tragedy that yep. happens to, to to her partner, and I don't, you know, uh, they did make terrible decisions in this this comic book. Things that real FBI agents probably never would have made, but more kind of portrays it as Breers's fault. I mean, she was taking the lead on this case, where Lambert was always trying to step on the brakes, and um, I I kind of found that questionable too. I don't want everything to be on Breers's head because that comes back to this argument of, you know, um, s subconscious consent, you know, to, to, to what eventually happens to her. And, and that subconscious consent, that's kind of where I'm, I'm reserving some comments for when we talk about section four, because I do have some very distinct thoughts on that. Okay. So, well, we'll get to that. Definitely, Aaron. Um, I'm I'm taking the long road. I apologize, but you know, so the first issue, not not too much in terms of horror. They do, you know, in the club, um, almost get their hands on Carcosa, but then he sort of um, escapes the FBI agents by 
disappearing into this mural outside of the club, this um, mm -hmm. kind of graffiti mural which portrays this um, Lovecraftian um, uh, figure, possibly a Shoggoth, I'm not sure, but it's this, um, you know, uh, a, a liminal form, and he stands next to it, and he literally bleeds into this mural, this Johnny Carcosa guy. And Carcosa himself is a very visually interesting character. I mean, he wears these outland this outlandish attire, and there's um, chiffon veil tied around his mouth and nose, um, and later on, if you've read Providence by Alan Moore, you'll see why he conceals his face <laughs> because it's what what's beneath that veil is very very upsetting. Once you finally get to see it, but he basically he's an avatar of Nearlathotep, one of the great old ones, the the messenger of the great old ones, and um, so he is in fact the messenger bringing the the the. Uh, you know, doctrine of Cthulhu or the doctrine of the Cthulhu mythos to the world, and um, mm -hmm. he speaks with a lisp, which which yes. I f find disturbing. But but you will, I mean, definitely see why he speaks with a lip a lisp when you read Providence. I don't know if you have read Providence, Aaron. I I have, and um, this okay, is so, so you know horrifically I mean. appropriate. Ugh. Ugh. I have to say, if anyone does have a lisp, I'm not making fun of you. I'm just drawing a parallel. Um, if anybody remembers the Brady Bunch from the 60s and 70s when Cindy Brady was speaking with that over overdone, very theatrical lisp, that was what I kept reading over and over again as I was preparing <laughs> to talk about this. So I, Oh, Johnny Carcosa it, talking in Cindy Brady's voice? Oh, yes, no, <laughs> that's very disturbing. I kept picturing Cindy Brady's voice, and it was oh. really, really horribly inappropriate. And all I could think of was... <laughs> There is a Cthulhu. He's got a really entertaining sense of humor, and he's looking at me, going, "You know what? Why don't you come sit by me?" <laughs> oh my god, that's horrible! Oh, that's even way more. That's that's worse. I think Moore would appreciate that, and and he would think, "Why didn't I think of that that analogy that Aaron just came up with?" <laughs> years about that. Cindy Brady. He he really kind of is the Cindy Brady of of, um, of the Cthulhu of mythos. <laughs> mythological thing he sort of goes around and disrupts everything and oh, no. you know looks adorable with this little sheet over his face so <laughs> oh yeah now that you I mentioned it he does have a kind of that. childlike innocence but a mischievous uh, air to himself but it but he's childlike in in the ways he talks and he's very direct like like a kid i can see yep. see that like you know the many many shades of of cindy brady an evil cindy brady now uh, in him, oh, Aaron, thanks the for that. Steve Brady is going to be the downfall of man. <laughs> oh my goodness, this is never going to go away. I can't unsee or or unhear what you've just told me. Uh, it's gold. It's gold. But um, yeah. you know, so <laughs> basically, you know, um, not much happens though in this first issue, right, Aaron? Other than our Cindy Brady revelation. <laughs> but when 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 it hits issue two. This is when the story really takes off. I mean, the second issue um, is entitled The Shadow Out of America. So um, uh, speaking about the shadow, um, you know, um, uh, one of the... Mm -hmm. I've, I've forgotten the, the original title now. Oh, this is so unprofessional of me. The Shadow Out of Time of, of Lovecraft's story. And um, uh, basically, uh, this second issue just um, allows the, you know, Breers and Lampert to discover more you know, of what, um, you know, happened in the first issue. They uh, got a supplier's name at Club Zothique, uh, a supplier of sex toys <laughs> to the, the Club Zothique patrons. 
And it turns out this supplier is based in Salem, Massachusetts, which is the original town that Lovecraft based Innsmouth off of. And um, uh, they decide to uh, go undercover yet again, as they did in the club in the previous issue, this time posing as a couple interested in weird sex and the occult. Um, They go to Salem and uh, with the full sanction of the FBI, of course, and they enter this uh, Cthulhu mythos-inspired sex shop. And then uh, eventually they're invited by the proprietor to a meeting uh, of like-minded people uh, who are interested in sex and the occult uh, that very evening. And um, this meeting turns out to be a sex cult mini-orgy that sets the stage for, you know, the horror that is the centerpiece for this entire narrative, really. But, um, Erin, now, uh, for me, what this second issue really showed is how um, Moore just um, takes our intelligence for granted because there's no way FBI agents who follow procedure would (laughs) ever make these decisions. I'm thinking about two bad decisions, one involving their weapons and getting naked and another one involving Breers taking off her contact lenses because it turns out that Breers is, um, you know, she is almost blind without her contacts or Mm -hmm. her glasses. And as an FBI agent, you don't go into a potentially hazardous situation, not even for the sake of of maintaining your cover, mm-hmm. blind. And she literally does that. And um, okay, so we'll get we'll get to 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 what we're talking about here. But <laughs> but Erin, so I, I want to hear your thoughts first. I mean, they're in Salem. They they go into the sex shop and they see all these basically sex toys inspired by the Cthulhu mythos. <laughs> now this was Here's- very disturbing to me. What did you think that of that? That wasn't so much disturbing. I mean, I've I've been in my fair share of uh, shops and have made many a smart aleck comment that I'm really surprised has not gotten me kicked out. Um, <laughs> there's there are stories there. Um, there was there was actually one day where um, my sister wanted to stop on a road trip and we ran into a shop and she went, oh, come on for grins and giggles. And a guy ran into the back room and I just called after him. Do you need a tissue, sir? And she, um, it, it, she was going back to one of the booth rooms and, um, she just, she and the owner both turned around and shot daggers at me. And all I could think of was, oh, I'll be in the car. But, um, Oh man. So yeah, I've, I get myself into trouble, but uh, but the the problem that I had with this was that this this um, this chapter really went um, from zero to batshit in about thirty seconds. I mean, they, first of all, the um, the whole changing sequence. I don't care, you know how how great of a um, how how great you're trying to set any woman that's wearing a garter belt is planning on taking it off in under five minutes because stockings and garters are probably one of the greatest torture inventions that has ever been created by mankind i'm not exaggerating especially for anyone whose thighs actually touch um thighs and garter belts are probably the absolute worst things so the minute that you see her getting changed in full view. I mean, recovering sex addict, she's getting changed in full view of her partner. And all I can think is, 
yeah, yeah. this this just no. seemed good to her recovery. And then I saw the garter belt and the thigh highs, and I went, "Oh, come on!" I mean, it, it sort of quietly seething. So for me, I knew that we were in trouble the minute that I saw that garter belt. I just sort of went, "Oh no, what are you gonna what are you gonna make me watch?" Yeah, and yeah, I know what you mean. It's sort of like uh, foreshadowing what's going to happen yep. you know at this point in time you can see where it's going and you know you know since you've read more before you know what's going to happen so i yep. I, I understand what you're saying there Aaron. and yeah. then on top of it the dialogue in the in the shop was just so laughable because she's talking about oh look honey there's this book that that explains this and he's like oh yeah you were telling me about that and i'm like you two sound about as believable as someone who's pretending to be a vegan in Whole Foods, I mean, it's one of these things is not like the other. You guys are not fooling anybody. No one caught on to you because your dialogue is bad and so very unbelievable. Um, just it it reminded me of there was um, quick side note there was a terrible terrible video that I had to watch. Um, as a teenager, as part of a uh, Catholic confirmation class. And um, part of the dialogue of this thing was this little boy incredulously asked this girl, you got to meet the bishop? And she just goes, yeah, I couldn't believe it myself. (laughs) And at that point, I threw down my 15-year-old me, threw down my pencil, just looked at the priest in her class and went, really? And he just looked at me and said, Aaron, just watch the video. And uh, it it really the, their dialogue took me right back to being 15 years old and going nobody talks like that yeah, I, nobody talks like that I completely uh, completely agree Aaron at first you know I was thinking after my first read of Neonomicon it takes me a couple of of, of reads of, of any book to really get into the nitty gritty of uh, and to understand what's happening but my first read through of Neonomicon I at first thought oh of course they were made because Johnny Carcosa probably gave the sex shop whispers in darkness as the shop is called uh, a heads up but but looking at this bad dialogue he he didn't need to give them a heads up he probably didn't since later on he he tells her you know he's not associated with the sex cult he really tells her that in a dream sequence so he definitely didn't give them a heads up they gave themselves away because of their horrible portrayal of these you know um you know a sex uh uh what, what do you call them, like sex swingers or, or cultist yep. sex cult swingers? Um, they're, they're just not doing a good job. And Moore is not doing a good job, you know, selling this. Because you'd think as FBI agents, they would be more competent when it comes to undercover work. Their improv skills suck. Yeah. I mean, especially with name <laughs> dropping. I mean, I I am a terrible, terrible person to try to, to get someplace and improv something. Like, if I get stopped by a cop, I'm, I am so getting a ticket, and um, and if you have if you have um, like if if someone says oh yeah just drop this person's name I can't do that casually I would I would be like you know if you told me oh yeah go down to this corner shop tell them I sent you I come down and you know there would be no finesse in in my speech at all <laughs> would just be someone sent me. So, um, oh God! So I just, just not cool. And the these people made me look suave. Well, I mean, I mean that. I mean, the fact that you know this about yourself makes it, um, you know, actually easier to understand why this doesn't work. You know, why they're these, so bad yeah. at it. 
I mean, someone who thinks they're good at improv would think this works, if you know what I mean, Aaron, if yeah. you know what I'm getting at. But the fact that you know, oh, yeah. and I know about that about myself too, I would totally botch this up, makes this more kind of transparent. But you'd think someone like Moore would also see that, but he doesn't. I, I, this doesn't, it just does not make sense in a realistic you know, a scenario, FBI agents would not be this bad and they would not make these bad decisions. So I completely get yes, what you're saying. I, the dialogue gives them away. And then, of course, later on, they walk through this tunnel through, you know, um, uh, a cellar that they enter in the sex shop. And this is a bit of a, a scary. This is where I started to feel the chills a little bit because, yeah. you know, they're being led down this tunnel. But at first you think, oh, it's still OK. I mean, they're they're armed uh, they've got concealed weapons, even though they're disguised as this this couple. And, and you know, they don't... I mean, the fact that uh, Lampert is black, um, you know, um, that should have, uh, you know, already made Breers think, whoa, these guys are all into Lovecraft. If they're thinking, you know, what he yes. says is real, they're probably going to be racists. They're probably not going to... Or not, not, not racist, but they're probably not going to be you know, um, uh, basically uh, willing to let just, you know, Agent Lampert into the sex cult. Because as we know, later on, we'll see that um, it's all like uh, middle class white, uh, you know, um, a kind of like the get out scenario, right? The get out, um, the movie uh, a system. It, that kind, that's kind of what Lovecraft's, um, you know, Illuminati all look like, even when you read, read Providence. They're all these, uh, you know, racist old Victorian prudes, you know, and um, these guys are no exception, even though they're the modern version of that, you know, so, there's, yeah. There's one Asian participant, but even even then it almost feels like there's the different treatment of the Asian characters as opposed to um, Gordon is really just kind of, he's held in utter contempt. Yeah. And but the one thing that I have to that I have to speak to is um, they make a really nasty derogatory comment about Gordon's body when um, after he's been shot in the head. Yeah. And um, they're hauling him out. And mm. these two guys are commenting about, look at the body on this guy. You know, it's such a waste that that these these um, black guys get bodies like this. <laughs> Yeah, I remember that part. That is yes. Um, really strange, almost reverence for his for um, Spanish men, where he, um, it, if if I didn't know any better, I think that if um, if Howard was alive nowadays, he he would either be um, a really deeply closeted, self loathing individual that you know. Um, that that fit quite a few American stereotypes. I will put it as kindly as I can, um, but I I think that he would either be that extreme, or Howard would be hitting the club every single night with, um, with you yeah, know he'll a be really out of the closet. Yeah, he'll either be out of yeah. the closet or he'll be repressed. You're right. No, I I, I think you're and right I, there. I think I think that to a certain extent, I think more kind of kind of nailed a lot of the whole Lovecraftian attitude, because he had this utter contempt and disgust for utter ra for for utter oh my god for other races, 
Yeah. But yeah. he held he held Spanish men in this like odd reverence. Like he, that was he wouldn't he would talk about a woman, and he would talk about her respectability and her social standing yeah and um maybe a couple details here and there if he described a hispanic man he he went to great lengths to talk about how beautiful he found them which was is really the right term he would speak about um about the way that the way that they would look and um especially if they were muscular and all i could think Reading that was oh Howard, you had a type. Yeah, I think <laughs> you you would have been very happy. I I, and... I agree with you there, Aaron. I mean, the story Cold Air comes to mind. You know, when the doctor, the doctor in the the tale Cold Air, he's this Spanish intellectual. You know, this um this um you know person definitely that that is held in reverence by the narrator, and and in as seen in a kind of avuncular sense. You know, he's the mentor to the narrator, and the um you really like. Uh, compliments every single aspect of this guy's culture and intellect. So no, I, I think you're right about that. I haven't. I, this is a revelation to me. You know the, what you just mentioned. I didn't know that he would have a type, but he definitely does. You know he does have that um, reverence, like you you say, for these uh, Spanish men <laughs> of high standing. I should say. You know. Yeah, um, and I mean. But is being, it Aaron, um, if I might ask? Being, oh, sorry. Could, go on. Being a bi woman, I mean, it's one of those things where it's like it's Highlander. You you put one of us in the room, and we can, like, we we know exactly, um, exactly uh, what what's going on with with everything. Oh yeah, no, I know and, you've got uh, you you kind of got a sense of uh, a better <laughs> sense than you know. I I know I know I've I've got a couple of friends like that too, and they it's true. I mean, it's been proven time and time again. We we joke, you know. Yeah, we we smell our own, and I'm calling it right now. You know, I I think Howard Howard at the very least would have been either deeply closeted, or um, nowadays, or he he would be, you know, out loud and proud. Because I mean, he just right down to everything. It's like, huh? That is why you had you know a pool boy and no pool. Uh, <laughs> Oh my God! Oh, that's a good, <laughs> that's a great way to put it. Which Aaron, means right now there's yeah. some there's some Lovecraft enthusiast right now that's like sticking pins into a doll and <laughs> screaming, it. "I hate you! I hate you! How dare you say this?" <laughs> but the thing is, if if you look at the evidence, I mean, there's yeah. there's a pretty strong case there. I mean, I I think, and <clears> I think Moore really nailed that with um with some of the dynamics with um with Gordon because. All of all of the men that are making these comments, it's um, you had mentioned earlier that there are some physiques outside of what we normally get to see, and yeah. for me that was both refreshing and as well as it um, it had an aspect of repellence uh, yeah. to it. Yeah, definitely. Because yeah. on one hand, you know what? It's it's nice to see somebody who's not cut from marble. You know, I've I've had two kids. I'm in my my. Uh, my mid thirties. And, you know, I, I kind of look at some of these, um, some of these drawings and go, yeah, no, that's not what you get with me. And, uh, and there, there are sometimes where, you know, you, you get to see someone who, you know, is not, is, is not that, you know, gorgeous, amazing cut from marble and there's a kinship to it. But at the same time, that 
it's juxtaposed with these individuals that are doing these terrible, terrible things. So it's it makes if it makes sense, it's almost as though that's an aesthetic choice that's designed to make us hate these people even yeah, more. Yeah, that's that's what I was getting at earlier when you know when yep. I mentioned it, but I I didn't actually enunciate it as well as you did just now, Aaron, because yeah, it's associated with horror. You know these. Um, uh, older older people first off i mean some of the women are noticeably sagging we're talking about the sex cultists now because once they yep. undress that's when the real horror starts the, the the horror that really centralizes everything in this in uh this four issue miniseries and um they start to undress and we see all these different body types and and ages too and um mm-hmm. you know basically Breers and Lamper being FBI agents they're in good shape the rest of the people mm-hmm. are not i mean they're either obese or too thin but like you say, that's a realistic body type because 90% of the world's population is not ripped. They're, they don't look like Lampert or even Breers. Right, Aaron? And um, oh, yeah. it's just a fact, taking ages into account and, 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 and whatnot. And so, you know, um, immediately, uh, we'll, we'll just get into spoilers right away. Uh, Lambert is shot by one of the cultists who rifle through their clothes. And very bad decision by them to take off their clothes and leave their weapons and then enter this pool area naked. And it's all portrayed as very dirty by by Burroughs, the artist. Yeah. Everything looks like moldy and slimy and dirty. And we'll find out why later because they're basically engaged in um, upping the orgon levels, like they, they say, with repeated sex acts in this pool. Um, which is very disturbing. Oh, it's it's horrible. That, that whole scenario just mm. from the very first time that I read it, and I mean it's been years. <laughs> so <laughs> every single time that I read this, I just sort of go, "Oh God, Meryl, I just want to give you some flip flops and like a bucket of Purell and you know maybe a couple of things of chlorine to throw into that pool." I mean, just it's so unsanitary, and every single time, all I can think is, thank God she didn't have her contacts in; they would stick right to her eyeballs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but well, I mean, I mean yeah, that's one of the the reasons why uh, one of the uh, sex cultists tell her to remove her contacts when they're in the changing room. It, yep. it could cause infection, and hell yeah, I mean, but she was probably, I mean, it would have probably been an, an unnatural, otherworldly infection <laughs> <laughs> because um, yeah. it would have been. Uh, <laughs> a hundred times worse than a normal one because basically they do in fact enter this room and that you know um, speaks to what I mentioned earlier she takes out her contacts at the behest of this woman she could have easily just lied you know and then and decided this is as far it goes as it will go and then you know we're FBI agents we're raiding you I, I don't know what their next step would have been but definitely the next step would not have been to enter weaponless into this unknown uh, environment and blind yeah, even on, 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 on Beryl's' uh, part. Yeah, there's no FBI agent that would do this. But you know, obviously they were hoping in 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 Moore's uh, world, they were hoping to to get as far as they could and and get information from these sex cultists. And then it turns out into this horror show. And Aaron, now these are the events. Lambert gets shot. Everything is hazy. We see panels. Uh, a traditional like uh, what Burroughs is famous for this four panel uh, page spread um, where he shows one panel panel in complete clarity and then one panel through the eyes of Breers where it's very hazy and um, she she can't see what's going on she can only hear what's happening and then we see uh, Lambert get shot and then you know Breers is left in, in kind of the dark in this misty world of her vision 
Uh, but then we were treated to a page which is completely clear uh, because Moore is, and, and Burroughs are intent upon showing us every single horrible detail of what happens yep. to Breers. And then basically what's happening is she is raped by these sex cultists in this pool. And the reason they give her for this, other than just for their own gratification and because they're sick as hell, is that they want to uh, summon something. They want to up the organ levels to summon something special. And uh, uh, probably, I mean, f when I was reading this, I thought, okay, this is, you know, some occult, you know, uh, uh, idea of summoning some spirits. No, it's actually summoning something physical, which is mm -hmm. how the, the issue ends after this horrific rape scene, which is just, it keeps going on and on and on. I mean, at this point in time, I was already like ready to throw away the comic uh, because I'm not, I don't like, this is not my kind of horror. You know, as I mentioned before we started recording, I'm not a fan of The Last House on the left simply because they, they portray these these things so graphically. But I do understand that sometimes you need to have your eyes opened. You, you need to actually, you know, be shocked into reality. But this for me was gratuitous uh, a little bit on, on Moore's part and on Burroughs' part. But it definitely served its function, which was to up the horror level. Um, but... But but Aaron, now I want you to ask uh, b before we get to the end when when this uh, thing shows up that they've summoned, I want to ask your your opinion on on this scene. And this is not even the central scene of horror yet that we're going to be discussing. Yeah. Um, for me, the most impactful thing was um, Breers knows that her rape is imminent, and, and when she looks at the one cultist and says. Please, you have. She she tells him you have to wear at least wear a condom for this, um, and and they just laugh at her and say, "Oh, you think we're going to make him wear one too?" So there's that that inkling of of you know, oh no, there's there's much worse out there. But listening to a woman who was an, who was a sex addict, that she gets to that point of loss of control and. It's it's markedly different from other things that she's experienced. She's suddenly at a point where she's not comfortable with losing control. Um, it's not something that she wants, and she's trying to negotiate even the slightest bit of control. And she's she's not allowed. And um, to one extent, I mean, the fact that she's got the streaming eye makeup. Yeah, you know yeah. that's um, that that was effective, but at the same time, it seemed to fetishize um, her victim status. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, throughout this whole ordeal, she's got this gun trained on her. You know, so there's no way, even with her FBI training, she could resist. This is completely realistic. But you see, that is my problem with it. It is this realistic portrayal of rape, but then it's it becomes something more. You know, it's like Moore wants to say this is the horror of rape and this is what I can do when you give me this type of material. You know, it's almost like um, here is a master of horror showing you the ultimate horror. And um, does it need to be shown, Ellen? I mean, does it really need to be shown? But we're getting into issue three here now. I, I agree with you when it comes to, you know, the, the, the realistic parts, you know, which is which is Breer's begging them to, to at least show some compassion and... Um, but yes. but these people are at this point in time you know that they're thoroughly uh, inhuman in terms of of any morality and um, they're I mean they've they've probably killed before 
since they shoot, you know, Lamper offhand and and laugh about it. Um, so they're very reprehensible. They're they've they've probably done stuff in their past that that isn't even hinted at here. And uh, who knows how many people they've they've violated or raped. And then, um, and, yeah, Erin. And on top of it, between the murder of Gordon and then the rape of uh, Merrill, it almost seemed to function under the um, under some sacrificial principles that are designed in religious ceremonies of um, the sacrifice of an animal and um, mm. and the sacrifice of a virgin. Yes. Exactly. So I mean, now, given Merrill, Merrill is definitely not a virgin, but um, the fact that she's un, unwilling um, really kind of kind of puts her in that status, which unfortunately breaks Gordon down even further. And I know um, the whole thing really bothered me with the way that Gordon was dehumanized um, based upon um, his ethnicity and. And then um, it, it just struck me as they they weren't fully expecting um, the um, the the creature that shows up. They they weren't really expecting something as large as him. Um, they they remark on on the size. Yeah. And think that um, I think that they I think that it it almost functioned as a sacrifice. Yeah. In order to to ensure. Um, successful ritual. I, I agree. I agree. It it sort of made me think about. Do you, you remember that at a movie? Um, one of the classics of horror, The Blood on Satan's Claw. Uh, yes. Have you seen that? You've you've definitely seen that, right, Aaron? Um, Long time. Oh yeah. But well, there's this scene where a, a little girl, a girl, is um, you know uh, um, a sacrifice, but you know in, the sacrifice is in the form of of a violation at first. And I think the movie's quite famous for that. Um, it's a folk horror tale, and it, it's also sort of a demonic coupling, similar to Rosemary's Baby. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it is for the purposes of sacrifice. So this probably, I mean, if we if you do some research back into ancient cultures, um, at some points in time, rape was seen as a type of sacrifice. Um, you yes. know, all all manner of human depravity has sometimes been served up as a religious you know, um, a sacrifice, almost totemic uh, kind of feel to it. And um, that, that is obviously speaks to the horror of the human race, which which is what this book is about. I mean, uh, this is, like you say, Moore is a bit nihilistic here. Um, but uh, this whole story comes f- uh, forth as kind of, um, uh, you know, a misanthropic even, you know, like mm-hmm. a hatred of humanity, because look at these horrific things we do to each other. We should be the slate should be wiped clean, uh, which is kind of like what you said earlier about Moore's stuff not being um, very pleasant uh, and certainly not ending on pleasant notes at all. But the the final panel panel of this issue is suitably horrific. If you think about horror in general, it works because through Merrill's blurred vision, she gets to see this creature that has arrived. Um. And uh, she looks into his eyes and he's like standing right in front of her now. So that's why she can see him a little bit more clearly than she could the rest. So he's right up close to her and that adds to the horror very effectively. So um, in terms of of their intent, which is to horrify us, it works. But of course, it's not a nice road towards this eventual revelation. 
Oh, absolutely. And then, Erin, we get to the third issue. Now, okay, I'm going to let you run with this issue when we get to uh, finish with the synopsis because this is this issue is the one that I literally wanted to just get rid of because it made me feel very bad about myself, um, mostly because I'm a huge Alan Moore fan, and this sort of this was my the start of my questioning of my own, you know, um, veracity as a as a comic book reader. Because this is when I became unsure of whether I should like something, uh, whether something is really good, but whether it's actually re- really bad, if you know what I mean, in terms of of of, of ultimate purpose behind the author. Yep, you know, that, that I do. Yeah, so um, just to get into the synopsis of the third issue, basically um, it has a bit where the FBI are now trying to locate... Uh, Breers and Lamper they've gone missing it's been a week since they last reported in so the FBI are in Salem they've questioned the uh, owner of the sex shop Um, they they haven't gotten anywhere basically Breers and Lamper has disappeared they haven't been able they've searched the shop but they haven't been able to find the the entrance to the cellar that led to the waterfront area Uh, basically it's a very long tunnel so it's far away from from the actual sex shop itself and um the sex cultists have since offered uh, Meryl up as a plaything to this monstrous uh, child of Dagon. If you if you're into Lovecraft's uh, writings, this is um, a deepling, or as they call it, a deep one that has shown up, and and Breer's, um, you know, she's living with it for this week in this in this pool area, <clears throat> and uh, Breer's has a revelation during. Her captivity and uh, subsequent ordeal at the hands of this deepling, um, and eventually she makes her escape, uh, but only with help from an unexpected source. So that's roughly the synopsis. So Erin, now, okay, this issue—I <laughs> don't know—I—it's really difficult for me to describe it. It starts off with them, uh, the FBI, interviewing one of the um, uh, members of Club Sothique, who. All, who refuses to speak English. She keeps speaking this pseudo-language that the Lovecraft cultists speak called Aklo. And yep. the FBI agents, this you, you get the sense that this is a last resort. They've, they've turned towards this woman because they can't find Breers and Lamper. So they're interviewing this woman, but she they can't get anywhere because they don't know what the language means. And uh, we'll, we'll speak more about Aklo later on, but this issue is entitled The Language at the Threshold, taking a cue from... or. Um, Lovecraft's uh, story, The Lurker at the Threshold. So this is all about um, Aklo and and what it means. The meanings being imparted here to the reader, but at first it's very obscure. Okay, Erin, I'm going to let you run with this issue. (laughs) Do you you have it in front of you? (laughs) This this issue, um, the biggest problem that I have is that it really, really eroticizes everything that this woman is going through. And at this point... Um, one of the one of the most disturbing things that happens, you start off where she's ha- where uh, Meryl's having a discussion with um, with evil Cindy Brady about um, about where she is in space and time, and he's handing her all the answers on this silver platter that you know it's that she exists on this different plane and that um, and that there's something very special in store for her. So she kind of gets told that she's a chosen one, and it turns oddly sexual between the two of them, and then it stops, and 
you you go back to um, you start out and then she goes into this um, internal world and then it it goes back and you find that it's really this dissociation thing where she's she's going someplace else where she's when she's being raped and um, and she tells um, one of the cultists tells her well you know you asked us to drug you after the first day and it's like how long has this been going on and oh my god that poor woman just oh dear god I mean my my first thought was you have got to be so sore right now I mean you, she probably wouldn't be able to walk with everything that's happened and you know knowing knowing what you do about you know repeated trauma and um and everything I mean she she had to have had tears and abrasions and there may have been some damage to um to her bladder at that point and god forbid if if the uh if the uh deep one you know slipped and went in the wrong area then you know that's got to hurt like <laughs> oh my God. That, sorry i shouldn't laugh i shouldn't laugh but erin you made me <laughs> sorry i apologize unfortunately, that's yeah. um well it was kind of designed to to lighten the mood but at the same time <laughs> It's one of those horrific things that, as a woman, as you're as you're reading this, you're going, "Oh my God, what if what if he slipped and went in the back door?" I mean, just, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, on uh, top of the pure horror. I mean, he's he's a pretty big hulking dude, and you get a lot of very clear shots where um, Alan Moore. I I find that he's not just content to show um, regular pieces of of naked women. I mean, cause that's normally what happens in comics. You get, um, naked women plastered everywhere. He's got to go full on Wang for, for, for everybody. And I mean, he passes out like it's Oprah's favorite things in this comic. And, um, he's, um, he's just got all of these, um, all of these depictions and you're sort of going, well, you know, nobody's, nobody needs a microscope and tweezers. So you have, you have to think to yourself, you know, especially reading it from a female perspective, oh my God, how, how bad did this hurt her? And knowing, knowing the physical effects, I mean, there's, there's so little blood around. So she's, um, she's either used to the trauma or, it's it's minimal, and I I had a hard time believing some of that. I mean, she would be with the sheer force of the way that he's grabbing her and throwing her around. She, she would have had to have been far more bruised, and chances are she'd be bleeding more. And there's one cell in particular where you just see their their thighs. I mean, it's very graphic, and you see her chest, but you don't see anybody's face. It's yeah. like yeah, I know what you mean. That's oh. really, really. It's putting the attention on the body, but not on the horror of what's happening to her. You don't see, you don't see her screaming. You, you just see, you know, you just see, for all intents and purposes, you know, a pretty chick is getting nailed, and that's if if you're just, you know, flipping through on the internet and you find that cell. I mean, that could keep you going for a couple of minutes, but if, if in context it's very easy to take some of those pieces of um the third um installment out and to really eroticize the act where it doesn't have the same horror impact and um 
Yeah, that's my main problem with it, Aaron, is the fact that, um, you know, that's what it becomes. And and looking at Mar uh, at Moore's relationship to the erotic, you know, um, yeah. to his, um, you know, stuff like Lost Girls and where he, <clears throat> you yeah. know, wants to make uh, pornography an art form again. Uh, admittedly, mm -hmm. along with his wife, who's along for the ride, Melinda Gebby, an artist in her own right. She's also yeah. into erotic portrayals of, you know, I just find this... Um, uh, not to my taste, not to my particular liking, but but as a selfish kind of person, I also don't want other people, you know, to to like this because it sets sort of the wrong precedent for me. You know, I mean, uh, hopefully, or or so far, we're lucky not to have seen more of this. You know, like um, creeping into comics. You know, like uh, fish sex or 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 sex with with unnatural entities. But I mean, um, it did happen in Providence again, again perpetrated by Alan Moore. But for me, there it was done a little bit better. Here it's just balls to the wall, full on. See how much he can shock you. Uh, he wants to really, really uh, take yeah. us for a ride on the on the shock train here, and um, it, it it works. But like you say, because it eroticizes the moment, the horror takes a back seat. It should be so horrific that we can't look at it, but. You know, it's yep, it, it's exactly. become eroticized, so it doesn't work, at least the way I wanted it to work. But you know, it's not all about me. Um, but that really affected my enjoyment factor. Well, it it's also it's also the difference between you know Neonomicon versus The Shape of Water, where you have this this creature that's regarded as a god, and it's this very sweet loving story of acceptance and um there's no resignation it's, it's acceptance and it's um it's feeling a sense of completion and it's breaking linguistic barriers whereas this is pretty much yeah we're going to throw you in a room with um with this giant hulking creature and he's just going to do whatever he wants with you so you may as well just you know get get used to it and um, one of the pieces of this that I found so disturbing is the fact that Breer starts buying into her own assaults. And she starts, um, you know, at, at one point more makes an, makes an effort. And um, when she starts screaming, you know, um, no, we're not doing it again. You hurt me. I'm sore. I can't do this. And she makes a comment about, yeah, it stings to pee. And I'm like... If you had been assaulted that often, you know, over the course of a few days, it would do more than just sting, sweetie. You would be, you would be screaming every time. You would have, you would have, between that and all the germs in there, she would have the world's most raging urinary tract infection. And um, she just, she starts, it's like she starts sympathizing with this creature and, there's there's reverence at one point when he ejaculates. She's like, "Wow, how do you keep doing that?" It's like, "No, mm. that's not what you should be asking right now, Meryl." Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's like just, early onset Stockholm syndrome, <laughs> but yes. it's it's it yes, doesn't happen exactly. that way. It doesn't happen that way, right, Erin? It's that's not the case because you know Stockholm syndrome largely relies upon, um, uh, you know, uh, lots of uh, uh, sort of. Uh, spoken and and abuse, uh, verbal abuse that that sort of gradually brainwashes you in terms of um, you know ideology. But you know here it's literally just the act, uh, this this repeated rape that causes Breers to sort of revere this creature. Um, now, uh, again, 
could th could it be that Moore made her a sex addict to alleviate this? It, it's probably why he made her a sex addict because he knew what he was eventually going to do to her, and he probably in his mind he thought this would be easier for her to take. But for me, that is also um, uh, one of the the reprehensible things that Moore did in this comic is is to say that she's a sex addict so it's 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 easier for her than it would be for a normal innocent person um it's not and it would be it wouldn't be easier for anyone because um like you said this is a monstrous fish creature he's like seven feet tall and he tears apart steel and concrete or iron and concrete later on as if it's confetti he's definitely injured her um mm -hmm. horrifically and um, the fact that she later on says, okay, the, you know, um, this is fine. Uh, you know, she befriends him. That, that in fact, was very unrealistic. I mean, everything's unre yes. unrealistic here. It's a supernatural horror comic. But still, Moore portrays it realistically. There's rules. And he sort of disregards his own, well, the rules of, of, of um, the fiction at this point. Which is that this thing is, he's out of control. He's obviously also losing control when he's um, having sex with her. He would probably rip her apart. Oh, absolutely. Um, just, I mean, if, like you said, there's, he's ripping apart steel and concrete. There's one point in this issue where he grabs her by the ankles and pulls her back into the water. That's, con that's solid concrete. I mean, she would have busted her kneecaps if he the way that he the way that he grabs onto her i mean she would have been really 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 injured um very severely and um yeah, i, I found incredulous and um it just i mean so, somebody like that is not going to be gentle with you no. so well i mean um this is another thing i wanted to ask you about okay they do eroticize the whole act that's wrong but uh, one of the things that I can't I can't help looking away though is how Jason Burroughs drew this deepling, how he illustrated it. I mean, he drew it in such a beautiful kind of way. I mean, artistically, as you think about aesthetics here, it's it's an amazing drawing of a deep one, uh, way more amazing than Lovecraft even describes it. And that's one one plus in the Jason Burroughs column here. For me, uh, what do you think, Erin? I mean, there's even the, the coloring by or by one more accentuates this. Um, if you look at this creature, it's basically just the way Del Toro imagined yeah. his um, deep one. And I like the French term they they latch onto these deep ones: the gargoule de gargoyle la mer, of the sea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, gargoyle of the sea. Um, and I do like that part, but that adds to the eroticism, not not yes. so much the horror. Because, I mean, you, you get the sense that Jason Burris wants to portray this as a beautiful fish creature. But obviously there's shocking scenes happening. But, you know, eroticism does that. You know, it's two beautiful people. And if you do that with rape, yeah. it's sort of two beautiful people raping each other, which is supposed to make it better. But it doesn't. You know what I mean? Yeah. Aaron? And that's, yes. what, that's one of the things that I had a problem with here. But a great, you know, um, depiction of this monster, though by by Burroughs. Yeah, the now the one thing that I found interesting was that he suddenly the the deep one suddenly switched from continually violating her for days on end and then suddenly he senses that he he picks up on the fact that um that she's pregnant hmm. and um, 
and suddenly it's oh she's got to escape this at at all costs and um it just it struck me as so discombobulated yeah just the the whole escape and everything it struck me as so you know suddenly i mean so many switches yeah it it was a bit contrived yeah because um yeah it, it gets from point a to point z uh, very conveniently, very very quickly. Okay, but but if you think about Moore having this overall larger narrative that he has been planning for years, it it kind of makes sense. But um, at this point in time, for for a reader, a first time reader, let's say, I don't think this would have made sense at all. It didn't make sense to me, and probably not to you, Aaron. Um, and and the first read is the most important. I mean, you know. It- what do you think? I knew what was I knew what was going on, and I just sort of went, "Okay, I'm calling bullshit on this because um, this just it started throwing in a lot. It it almost felt like they wanted to do something over six issues, and their publisher told them, "No, you only have four. So it it really felt like it was truncated storytelling. It felt like there should have been more of a build up between the characters. And so, for me, it felt like there was a lot left on the cutting room floor that we didn't get to see. And I, I felt like it was missing more stuff with Carcosa. And, um, yeah, they it, barely it, hinted at that. I mean, they just hinted uh, at the Carcosa thing, and they, then they never yeah. ran with it. I mean, uh, uh, but, but Moore does that sometimes when it comes to his interpretation of Lovecraft. You have a lot of hinting in, in Providence, too. But with Providence, like you said, they had more room to run with the the story, which made it a better work in the end. But I agree with you, Aaron. That is one of the points that you just made, that they had to truncate everything. I think that's the reason why Moore suddenly introduced um, uh, that this creature was capable of speech. Right after it sniffed her urine, it suddenly started talking. And she even started to recognize some of the words, because at that point in time, she had possibly become infected with the language called Aklo, which which that's how it's carried along. It, you you kind of become infected with it. You know, it's like this er language. And um, she started to kind of grasp uh, some some word, the meaning of certain words. Um, but that's that for me looked like a device more introduced to to get the story going. You know, to get yep. it to eventually escape. Yeah, I I agree. And then that takes us right into that's a good segue for. Um, episode four so to say yeah 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 you're right because basically he helps her escape after smelling his her pee realizing she's pregnant and at this point in time it's fairly obvious um you know i got this on on the first read through because um at first you know in in issue three you've got her sitting in this broken city now if you know your lovecraft mythos that is definitely the broken city of relay uh where cthulhu is said to be sleeping slumbering um you know cthulhu being the main great old one. Now, this is a very novel in- idea that Moore introduced in his reimagining of the Lovecraft mythology, Aaron. I- I'm pretty sure you'll agree. Um, the city of Relay is Breers herself. It's Meryl Breers herself. She is the city of Relay. More importantly, her womb is the city of Relay. And she is a broken city. If you if you want, want to run with that analogy, with that metaphor... Breers is a broken person. She's putting herself back together, but she is, in fact, the analogy that that Moore is playing with here, the broken city of Relay. Her womb is Relay, and the great old ones are not so much great old ones as they are yet-to-be-unborn great new ones, if you can put it like that, which is a bit clumsy 
for my part to put it like that. But um, that's what the third issue leaves us with. Um, and especially that the great old one, or, or sorry, I should say the deepling that helps her escape, he realizes this once he's, um, you know, you know, smelled her urine or tasted her urine and realized that she ha has in fact now um, been impregnated with Cthulhu himself, you know. Um, uh, now, I'm not giving away any spoilers here. We've already dropped the spoiler warning, but that's basically what the third issue leaves you with. Fairly obvious. Um, so some people say it's elegantly done. I would say not so much because I saw this coming. What about you, Erin? I agree. I saw it coming and I sort of went, wait a sec. I've, I've been pregnant before. I know how long it takes these tests to show up. So, I mean, given it's it's an unnatural pregnancy, but um, the the whole thing of, you know, the minute that he started saying relays is within you, um, and the the whole idea of Cthulhu is is born from water. My first thought was, oh, and we have Cthulhu's, you know, conception story. Yeah, and yeah. Um, it it was very very obvious, and to to me, there, I I have a problem with certain pieces of obvious storytelling because it turns into okay, you're being really, really obvious right now and you're not making me work for anything. You know, I'm. Mm. what's the point of me even finishing if I know where this is going? So it really kind of took the, the wind out of my sails for part four where I said, it doesn't make much sense. Yeah, exactly. Now this uh, part three, really the revelation in part three really ruined part four for me, Aaron, because part four is just the mop up. Uh, basically, yep. it's like, um, you know, uh, if you if you uh, hearken this to to a, a CSI show, this is basically after the the CSI technicians have come in after the the blood experts have done their blood analysis. And now the, the issue four is just cleaning the floors because, um, you know, the red tape has come down. There's nothing new, no new revelations for the reader. And um, just to give a brief, brief synopsis of the final issue, it's called The Lurker Within. Now this this is a bit on the nose too because obviously this refers to the baby within Breers's you know uh, womb. Now I I tried to 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 see a second meaning into this term. It it just doesn't have a second meaning. It's too on the nose, too obvious. The previous uh, issues had better titles, I think, because you know they dealt with more concepts. But this adds to the feeling that the final issue was rushed. You know, just the lurker within yes. this monstrous baby. And, okay, so to get to the synopsis, uh, she makes good on her escape, and then Breers manages to alert the F FBI about the danger posed by the Cthulhu sex cultists. They raid the shop, carnage ensues, lots of people die, people are shot. Um, and, in fact, the, the deep one, the deepling, who's now on Breers' side, he also takes a hand in, in, in cleaning up this sex cult. Um, and then, you know, obviously the uh, issue culminates with a visit again by Breers, who's now been changed by her ordeal and by her baby that's now in her tummy, uh, to Aldo Sachs. She visited, visits him again in the Haven Psychiatric Institute. And then um, it's supposed to be a revelation for the reader, but it turns out to just be a revelation for Aldo Sachs. So it's kind of like us seeing his reaction, which we don't really care about at this point in time. Uh, so a bit of wasted uh, potential and wasted space there. This sounds weird for me saying this um, about an Alan Moore work, but I really feel that, that this is the effect it left me with. 
So Aaron, uh, this final issue, um, how did it feel to you? Um, well, the the largest thing that I took away from it was they really kind of, Ellen Moore really sort of, t really kind of crapped on fatherhood because you have, um, you have the, really, if you think about it, the, the main takeaway is, well, you know, dad's expendable because, you know, dad kind of, he, he helped with the escape and he helped with the, the vengeance, which felt really strange, almost like, it's almost like the moment that she accepted um, what was going on and started to roll with it. Suddenly, um, the Deep One got on her side and almost started taking commands for, from her. So he started ripping apart the other cultists. And then, um, you know, he was he was shot and killed, but it's okay because, you know, yay, baby. So, um, <laughs> so you know, it, yeah. it's cool because he, he fulfilled his purpose. But um, the whole the whole thing with Aldo Sachs I found to be very intriguing because he was just as squeamish about sex as, as Lovecraft. Yeah. <laughs> as Lovecraft. Yeah. So there, there he is. Uh, Meryl's explaining what happened to her. And it's not so much the fact that she underwent this horrific ordeal. He was like, Oh, I don't want to hear about that gross stuff. Ew. Yeah. That part was, was damn <laughs> funny. <laughs> area covered. And, um, so so he gets like genuinely squicked out which people were talking about he was cutting off people's hands and replacing them with tulips while his victims were still alive and he's getting really grossed out by a vagina i mean really i mean really dude they're not that scary and um and on top of it i mean then then you have her her big dramatic reveal which were like Ellen, we all know she's knocked up. I mean, it does not take a rocket scientist to figure this out. You know, we, we saw the pregnancy mm -hmm. test and the Annunciation. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and he, he treats it as this big, melodramatic reveal, and it's like, Ellen, um, we, we read the spoilers on Newsweek, um, but he, um, he just insists on being so melodramatic that it really kind of warped the message about... They just suddenly throw in, you know, existence on another plane and time is nonlinear. And I mean, there's so much that they could have done um, just artistically and in terms of writing. And it just felt like it was chugging along. And then after issue one, they said, yeah, scratch that. We don't have funding to do 10, um, 10 scripts of this. You only get four. Yeah. And they, they scrambled to condense the entire thing down and yeah it just agree. It, it did not do well yeah it could have been so much more like okay i do um with subsequent re-readings i started to appreciate the whole sequence of panels where they're portrayed as occupying this fourth dimension the the plane of ling um because you know if you think about it the whole concept is uh time being non-linear so the great old ones are yet to be born you know, um, Moore played with this concept in From Hell too, but much more elegantly. Um, so I I did understand why he put that in, you know, saying that they're occupying a higher mathematical plane in order to get to the eventual birth of Cthulhu, which is actually always, always been imminent, if you know what I mean. That's why we knew about it in the past, why Lovecraft knew about it, why why 
people who had influenced Lovecraft to to write his stories um, had the sense of impending apocalypse because the in effect the apocalypse had already happened. So you could relate this to other apocalyptic nar- narratives, right, Aaron? You could relate this to to Ragnarok in North Norse mythology. Um, you know the twilight of the the gods in in you know the the, the Irish the Celtic mythology when you know you could uh, basically we're obsessed with the apocalypse even in revelations in the bible and it could just be um you know offshoots of dream um occupying this 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 nightmarish true state of of the world which is actually the cthulhu mythos seeking to to enter our reality which in fact if you've read providence it that is the the culmination of the you know the yep. providence tale so that part i appreciate but like you say it wasn't done very well because they didn't have the they didn't devote enough time to it you know so it's just something you're you're it's they just throw it at you throw it at the reader so yeah it just sort of felt like we we started out watching this graceful bell coming down the um down the staircase and then she tripped on her dress and <laughs> yes. hit every step on, yes brilliant brilliant on the way down. that's exactly what it is because if you think about it uh, moore is great on concept He's a he's an idea man, and with the right artist and the right time, the right panel space, he definitely delivers in his execution. You know, Watchmen being a good example, um, uh, V for Vendetta, all of all of those classics. But here, it definitely stumbles, like you say, it falters because it's a four issue mini, and more ideas are packed into here into this than Watchmen, really, if you think about it, uh, conceptually. So um, yeah, they they fumbled a bit at the end. But I must say it does enhance the reading of Providence a little bit, if you think about it. Um, I did get more, I understood Providence better, you know, after I read Neonomicon. I wouldn't say I enjoyed it more for Neonomicon's sake, but, you know, um, with the input of Neonomicon. But I did get a greater sense of appreciation for Moore's sort of world building. But but if you think about it, Aaron, this is basically just Lovecraft's world, you know, that Moore is playing in. So actually, we shouldn't give too much credit to Moore because he's good at stepping into a pre-existing world and then revamping it for his own purposes. Um, yep. So how much world building is there really going on? It's It's actually all at the feet of Lovecraft here. But I was left with a sense of, so that's it? I, I was very disappointed at the end of of this series and in fact it's it's not a more uh work that i recommend to people at all not just for the rape and and for the horrific scenes it's just because it doesn't make sense much and um you could make it make sense if you read too much into it if you know what i mean but that's just self-service it, it it's not supposed to be that way you know it should um make sense uh on a on a, a kind of grander scale for me, you shouldn't like like oh I love more so much now I'm forcing it to make sense, and that's kind of how I felt, which which is a betrayal of myself I'm 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 sure but I don't like that feeling that's why it didn't work for me. So yeah, that's yeah. what I'm I'm gonna end with. All right, let's get down to ratings, Aaron. Um, in honor of. This being an H.P. Lovecraft-inspired comic, I've decided to use the Cyclopean Monolith rating system for this show. So how many Cyclopean Monoliths would you give this comic book out of five? 
You know, I would have to give it a two out of five if only for the fact that more, more it's a swing and a miss um, where he he's piggybacking off of others' ideas and he gets to a point where he's very, very happy to include um, some of his hallmarks in this rather than staying true to, um, to the way that Lovecraft would have run the show. So, um, I, I think that he, um, I think that he tried with the trauma aspect and the problem is that he approached it in his, um, typical MO as opposed to actually what I really want Alan Moore to do is to go and have a, um, honest to goodness conversation with, um, with a woman in a crisis center. I, I really want him to I really want him to go see the human faces of some of of some of these experiences and maybe he'll maybe he'll knock it off and and want to actually give women a voice because the whole well I have daughters so I need to call light sorry call um, call this issue to light um, that that train of thought is um, while it's a step of progress it's not fully where we need to where we need to go as um you were speaking earlier you know you you shouldn't say you know well rape is bad because i have you know a mother a wife and a daughter you should say rape is bad because it's a terrible thing to happen to a human being exactly no i i agree with you there yeah no erin you make some very good points there i um i felt uh, that i definitely you know gave it a good go you know trying to analyze this with you on board i want to um thank you for that really thanks for being on the show because i wouldn't have been able to tackle this on my own not in a million years so but i felt it needed to be to be talked about at least so um listen before we wrap up this section though i've i've kept you way too long but i want to ask you could you remind readers where they can find you online and um sure yeah um, you can find me at thebackseatdriverreviews.com. I also am the technical editor over at House of Leaves Publishing. Uh, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Um, you can also find some of my ramblings over at Diabolique. And um, if you're into Adventure Time and you want to hear me um, <laughs> deconstruct Adventure Time, you can head on over to That's Not Current. Um, I am also... Um, on the Decades of Horror, the Classic Era um, podcast, um, which is an offshoot of um, Gruesome Magazine. So you can also find me there. And after a little bit of a vacation, I am um, coming back in the next few weeks to um, to that podcast. That's wonderful, Erin. No, no, I'm sure our listeners will definitely check that out. Anything horror, they really glom onto. So since you're a horror nut, <laughs> they'll follow you in whatever <laughs> you know field you might play in. So, Erin, then, before we leave, it's customary for me to ask guests to quickly leave us with a recommendation or two. It could be anything you've recently watched or anything you've read um, to just let the the readers know what you've been into re- uh, lately. So, would you leave us with a couple of recommendations? Sure. Um, if you are not reading I Hate Fairyland by Scotty Young, you absolutely need to. Um, it is... It's grim, it's dark, it's like horror that's been dipped in cotton candy, um, quite literally. <laughs> it's, um, the, the premise is this little girl goes, um, 
get sucked into this um, fantastical fairy realm called Fairyland, and she's given a task to complete. It should take about a day and a half. Well, 27 years go by, and she still hasn't completed it. And she, while her body has not changed, she is now the most warped, bloodthirsty, um, completely deranged individual. And her name is Gertrude, of all things. Um, and the way, the, the backstory is just as hysterical on this one. Um, this particular um, child... Um, came about when Scotty Young was reading a story to his son and he started to wonder what happens after happily ever after, you know, how do these people keep up that level of energy? Mm. And this story was born. And I mean, they do labyrinth parodies. Um, they did, that was actually one of my favorites. They, they ripped on David Bowie's cod piece pretty bad. Um, yeah, they, um, they do. They, there's one part where Gert goes to a comic con, and she finds other people dressed up like her, which is just such a great meta statement on on um, comic con culture. Yeah, <laughs> she's oh. ultra violent, and she's just full of bloodlust. And um, they do Game of Thrones parodies on this. Yeah. Um, there's a Barney rip in there. I mean, <laughs> they take pot shots at everything and if especially if you have kids and you've had to slug through a really really terrible show that you didn't want to watch um yeah it will be so so meaningful and even funnier um so there's that that one if you haven't read um jeff lemire's um sweet tooth i would highly suggest that one um sweet tooth is one of those um one of those series that I've wondered, why hasn't anyone adapted this? You know, why, why are we getting so many remakes of movies that nobody cares if we remake them? I mean, do, do we really need to get another Cabin in the Woods remake? No, make Sweet Tooth. You know, just give us something. Um, I, I can't bring myself to, to watch um, the adaptation of I Kill Giants. That one is too close to my heart. And if you haven't read I Kill Giants, um, just know that if you don't cry at the end of it, you're not human. <laughs> you're not fully human. Oh, brilliant, um, yeah. Oh, I love all of those. Rec- I, I haven't recommended any of those to the listeners. So, you know, I'm, I'm kicking myself here, Aaron. But you've you've <laughs> definitely jumped the gun on that one. And I, I appreciate that because they need to read that. Like you say, those are seminal series. So. You've got good taste, I must admit. Thank you. But that also speaks to my good taste because I'm the one who got you on my show. So <laughs> There you go. Thanks, Aaron. Listen, it's been a blast. Um, thank you for being on the show. I hope that I could slot you in again. I would really like to do that for a future show, possibly involving yes. one of the recommendations. Who knows? Up to you. That sounds fantastic. But with that, it's time for us to take our leave. This segment has been very long, but I think very meaningful so again, Aaron, I, thanks for that. I wouldn't have been able to do it without you. But um, that wraps up the segment. And with that, it's time for me to say bye-bye for me. Bye for me too. When I came out of the shadows, I was in a San Francisco hospital, brought thither by the captain of the American ship which had picked up my boat in mid-ocean. In my delirium, I had said much but found that my words had been given scant attention. Of any land upheaval in the Pacific, my rescuers knew nothing, nor did I deem it necessary to insist upon a thing which I knew they could not believe. Once I sought out a celebrated ethnologist and amused him with peculiar questions 
regarding the ancient Philistine legend of Dagon, the fish god. But soon perceiving that he was hopelessly conventional, I did not press my inquiries. It is at night, especially when the moon is gibbous and waning, that I see the thing. I tried morphine, but the drug has given only transient surcease and has drawn me into its clutches as a hopeless slave. So now, I am to end it all, having written a full account for the information or the contemptuous amusement of my fellow men. Often, I ask myself if it could not all have been a pure phantasm, a mere freak of fever as I lay sun-stricken and raving in the open boat after my escape from the German man-of-war. This I ask myself. But ever does there come before me a hideously vivid vision in reply. I cannot think of the deep sea without shuddering at the nameless things that may at this very moment be crawling and floundering on its slimy bed, worshipping their ancient stone idols and carving their own detestable likenesses on submarine obelisks of water-soaked granite. Welcome to yet another installment of Herman's History of Horror. Note the alliteration. Today, we will be talking about one of the sister publications of the famous Warren magazines, Eerie, Creepy, and Vampirella. These sister magazines were from the lesser-known, but notorious, eerie publications, and their infamous editor and owner, Myron Fass. Well, listeners, we're back with Herman's History of Horror, and today we'll be looking at the eerie publications competitors to the Warren and Skywald magazines of the late 60s, or I should say mid-60s to late 60s to the early and mid-70s. So basically, Myron Fass, the owner of MF Enterprises, he was a publisher since the late 1950s, but he had an unorthodox way of coming up with new uh, and lucrative ways of making money off of his magazines. He would uh, look at the current trends, the zeitgeist, uh, the things that kids and uh, even adults were interested in at the time, and then he would immediately seize upon a good idea, first pioneered by another pu publisher, and then he would suddenly uh, flood the market with a slew of like-minded and similar-looking magazines. Now, a lot of his horror magazines uh, the most famous among them probably being Weird, these magazines were filled to the brim with old horror comics from the 1950s, most of the time. Um, and so he didn't actually employ a lot of new artists and writers on his Eerie Publications books. He basically just pirated old material from early 50s horror comics and then put this in magazines and literally... Uh, dominated the rack space of the distributors at the time, the corner stores, the newsstands, and so forth, because of the sheer volume 
of his magazines and he became very rich as a result of this business practice. Now, uh, Myron Fass is a very controversial figure because of this practice, but not only did he um, shamelessly rip off other people's ideas, he also almost plagiarized material that was not really in the public domain, but you know nobody was laying claim to it. Um, they might not have cared because they thought horror was on its way out, but he just um, scooped it up and uh, he was similar to a, a publishing vulture where he would uh, scoop up all of these uh, horror nuggets that lay around unpublished since the 50s and then he would just throw them together in his magazines. And um, Myron Fass is also famous for briefly trying to acquire the rights to the name Captain Marvel. Um, he had not bought the rights from Fawcett magazines, um, not as far as I know, he had simply decided, oh, the name wasn't in use since the um, late 1940s and early 1950s when DC had sued Fawcett Publications for the rights to the character, uh, for, the, for publishing the character of Captain Marvel and um, on the grounds that it was too similar to Superman. And then, you know, the name wasn't in use for 15 years. And then in the mid-60s, Myron Fest decided, oh, superheroes are back in vogue. Let's publish uh, a superhero comic. And uh, this Captain Marvel moniker hasn't been used for a while. I'll just use that. So um, he drafted Carl Burgos, the creator of the original Human Torch, um, in uh, the early 1940s, actually late 1930s, um, to come up with a superhero befitting the name of Captain Marvel. And Burgos, obviously having a predilection for robots since his first human torch that he invented in the 40s was actually an artificial android-like creature. He created another android or robot um, under the name of Marvel Man, um, Captain Marvel and then proceeded to give him these weird powers where uh, when he yells split, he could um, fly apart and his body parts could independently attack his foes. And when he, strangely enough, yelled Zam, he would uh, reassemble. Um, and this was a very strange superior. I think only about seven issues were published before uh, the comic went under because of due to low sales. But that didn't stop Myron Fast for trying to sue Marvel Comics because Marvel had at that time acquired the rights to the name of Captain Marvel. And they had been, because they simply, they published a character called Captain Marvel and so secured the rights. And uh, Myron Fest tried to uh, win the rights back from them uh, in court. He couldn't, though, because the Captain Marvel comic that he had been publishing was not doing very well. Um, but, you know, that's not all he's famous for. He's also famous for uh, his knockoff Archie uh, character called Henry Brewster, who is a direct... Uh, knockoff of Archie. He's uh, completely just pl uh, plagiarized the concept. Um, he's got red hair, he's got two girlfriends, he looks similar to Archie. Also, it didn't last long uh, because people realized that they were reading just basically diluted Archie comics. Um, but that didn't stop Myron Fast from making a lot of money in the publishing industry just because of the sheer number of books that he always had on the racks and because of the popularity of horror titles at the time. 
meaning that he would definitely make a profit because he himself described his book as high art on very cheap paper. So his production costs uh, wasn't a lot. It didn't really matter when you compared that to the sales of the books. Uh, his books sold like wildfire all over the States. And so he was probably at one point in time the wealthiest uh, magazine publisher for a short time uh, simply because of this business practice of uh, keeping a close watch on the trends and then um, literally uh, flooding the market with uh, things that were popular at the time, whether they be horror magazines or science fiction magazines, any kind, even like I say, he tried his hand at superheroes. Now, even though the quality of the Erie magazines were not as high as that of Warren publishing the Warren magazines, um, Erie was still well known for its lurid uh, covers with uh, oftentimes sexualized uh, victims of the female persuasion being menaced by these grotesque monstrosities and blood was dripping all over the place. It was the equivalent of a hammer horror film in bright wondrous color with blood artificial looking blood spewing from every orifice and um, of course they didn't have um, artists like Bernie Wrightson or uh, Frank Fazetta on their titles they had guys like um, Oscar Fraga and Bill Alexander but these guys delivered these uh, jaw-dropping covers which was more shocking than than beautiful or more shocking than filled with craft but they did the trick because the kids were looking for that they were looking to be shocked they were looking to be uh, thrown out of their comfort zones and so this sufficed for fastest purposes of course he paid these cover artists a pittance they definitely didn't make a lot of uh, dough from what they did for Erie Enterprises um, and again Myron Fast benefited from um, low cost and then high returns on his uh, books. The covers definitely did the trick uh, of selling the books, even though the content was uh, deplorable and atrocious. If you compared them to the other horror magazines like Skywald or Eerie and Creepy and Vampirella at the time, still, it worked. And um, if you can hit, get your hands on some Eerie magazines, do so. I think Craig Yo from Yo Publishing. Um, has published quite a lot of that material, um, not directly uh, credited to Erie Publications, of course, since Erie pirated most of their uh, stuff, but definitely some of those pre-code um, classic horror tales, which was not from the EC stable, though, can definitely be found in some of the Yo publications, I'm sure. So check that out on Amazon. There's also some Yo publications available on Comixology, and there's lots of them um, up for grabs on eBay. Uh, at not too uh, exorbitant a price. So that's the history of horror for this week. I hope you enjoyed learning all about Eerie Publications and the infamous gun-toting, if I should mention that, Myron Fass, a man who apparently never walked without his uh, sidearm. And he frequently used that to intimidate employees and competitors alike. We'll be back with our next segment. Uh, which is our recommendations, and a shout-out to a friend of the show. So, stay tuned. 
We hope you've enjoyed Herman's History of Horror. Chronicling the life and times of one of my idols, the infamous Myron Fass. Read up on him in the title called The Weird World of Eerie Publications, available on Kindle. To learn more of this fascinating personality, farewell listeners, and pleasant screams. <laughs> I'd like to start this segment off by saying happy birthday to Mark. That's Mark Scott, my buddy over on Facebook. Um, he's part of the group Horror Etc., also the United Nations of Horror. Um, he's a horror comic collector and a reviewer for Big Comic Page. Um, great guy. I've gotten a lot of good recommendations from him and his mate Chris Downs. And as I'm recording this or fi I should say wrapping up the show, I actually recorded the interview with Aaron um, from earlier, um, about almost a month ago. Um, it's basically Mark's birthday, yeah. So happy birthday, Mark, man. And speaking about Mark, uh, a couple of um, weeks ago, Mark contacted me on Facebook and he said um, he listened to one of my earlier shows about Richard Corbin's Shadows on the Grave. And... He saw a similarity because between one of the tales um, that uh, that is actually in that comic, and a, fa a tale by a famous writer, William Hope Hodgson, the writer of *The House on the Borderland*. Uh, one of Hodgson's short stories bear a bears a striking resemblance to this Richard Corbin tale in *Shadows of the Grave*. And I did read up on that. Um, the tale is called *A Voice in the Night* by William Hope Hodgson. Um, it's strikingly uh, similar to the tale uh, of Richard Corbin. And basically it's about these two uh, shipwrecked um, people who end up in this lagoon and they saw this, see this derelict hulk, um, an abandoned ship. They proceed to... Um, bed down on the ship uh, to take shelter on it and eat uh, food left over by the previous crew. After doing so for a couple of days, they realize that this fungal growth is sprouting out all over their skin. And um, this is in fact what the Richard Corbin story is also about. Um, as you might remember, if you had listened to um, my previous podcasts, the story is called Roots in Hell from Shadows on the Grave, number one, published by Dark Horse Comics with uh, Richard Corbin as both writer and artist. And it chronicles two people um, in an airplane uh, crash landing near an island. And then the only thing that they could um, use to sustain themselves on this island to eat is basically this um, weird fungus that grows on these uh, trees. And as they eat this fungus, they slowly become trees themselves, living trees, living, walking horrors, kind of like the Ents from The Lord of the Rings. Um, 
and then uh, they both succumb to this horrific transmogrification. Uh, so I think, Mark, you hit, you definitely hit on something here, buddy. It, I think, uh, almost no doubt about it, Richard Corbin, he was probably reading. Uh, maybe he didn't do this um, consciously. Maybe this is a subconscious um, gesture, but he definitely based the tale Roots in Hell off of A Voice in the Night from William Hope Hodgson. So thanks for the, pointing that out, Mark. I wasn't aware of that tale before, and even though I'm a huge Hodgson fan, I haven't read a lot of his short stories. Um, I do reread The House on the Borderland uh, once every two or three years or so. It's a brilliant tale, uh, early precursor to Lovecraft. So yeah, Mark, thanks, man. And enjoy the birthday. I hope you got a lot of new books, um, and I hope you were spoiled rotten. So that's it for this week. I'll leave you with a couple of recommendations, though, before we sign off, listeners. And uh, what better time to recommend that which we discussed in my History of Horror, and that is the Eerie Publications from uh, Myron Fass's MF Enterprises. Now... These publications featured uh, similar stories to the Warren uh, magazines, but the stories were more lurid. They were they contained more sexual content, um, more naked skin, um, if you can believe it, more blood and gore. And um, they were definitely interesting, a product of their time. They don't hold up well today, but if you're interested in the history of horror, I'm sure um, you'll find them fascinating. You can find lots of them on eBay. Um, they're, like I mentioned earlier, not very expensive. They're cheap. So um, I'm going to recommend a few titles for you here. And this is probably the most famous titles that Eerie Publications published. And they are as follows. Horror Tales, Strange Galaxy, Tales from the Crypt. Whoa, that's a blatant ripoff <laughs> from the old EC comics. Uh, Tales from the Tomb, they've got Tales of Voodoo, Terror Tales, Weird, which is my personal favorite, just a magazine called Weird. And then Weird Worlds, another good one, and Witches' Tales. That's actually my second favorite. Um, so try to get your hands on some of that, those magazines. They're, they make for a cracking good time reading, even though they're so bad it's good. <laughs> and then uh, for more modern horror connoisseurs, I'll leave you with a Another recommendation, um, one of my favorite series is Back, published by Avatar Press. Um, you might have heard of it, and it is Crossed Plus 100. It's backed with a new uh, series. Um, the newest issue came out last week, and uh, this time around, written by Christos Gage and Pat Shand, with art by Emiliano Urdinola and Raulo Caceres. And the full title of this comic is actually Crossed Plus 100 Mimic. I read the first issue early this morning. Um, great stuff. Amazing. It's just as shocking and disturbing as the old Crossed series is. So go for it if you're um, of a mind to uh, see some gore and some ridiculous uh, blood splatter on the page um, and the insanity of the Crossed then pick this one up. It's a little bit expensive. Um, 
and I think it's retailing for $5.99. I got a discount on mine. I picked it up for $4.99, but it is still expensive. However, you do get two stories in there, the main feature and the backup feature. So definitely worth it. Or you might just wait for it to be collected because Avatar, they do have some great collections. Um, you just have to kind of wait for a while before you get your hands on it then. So that's it for me this week, listeners. I hope you enjoyed um, my conversation with Aaron. I do have to mention I am actually a huge Alan Moore fan, but there are some questionable things that he sometimes does to his characters and to some of the books that he writes that I don't really enjoy as much. Um, I used to love everything he does, worshipped him like a god, but now I do realize that he is flawed in some respects. And Neonomicon is definitely my least favorite thing that he's ever written. But, you know, normally I like to keep the show upbeat and I like to only discuss the stuff that really blew my mind that I really like. So come next week, I will get back on the bandwagon and talk about something, um, something that I really enjoyed, something fun. You could actually call it a bit of comedy horror. So um, I'll see you and hear from you soon. Hopefully you'll drop me a line. Um, I'm on Twitter at Dark Longbox. You can also send me a message via email to uh, darklongbox at gmail.com or you can check out the blog at www.longboxofdarkness.com With that, it's goodbye from me and sweet dreams, listeners. Read some horror comics. They make the world so much better and more enjoyable. Pleasant screams.